I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I'll give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice come from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. You were brought before someone and asked to stand for Jesus or die. Would you do it? Now, that's the situation facing the earliest readers of this letter that Mel just read for us. Uh, the emperor in Rome, there was this test for Christians that if they would not bow down and worship Caesar, they would die. This is official Roman policy to execute anyone who refuses to fall before Caesar. And so for the first readers of this letter, this is a very real question. Would you stand for Jesus when the pressure is applied? Uh, it's a story, it's a question that's faced faithful believers throughout the story of the Bible. Remember, we've been looking at these beastly regimes, these beastly empires, and we saw in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament uh, different kings with the same test. Do you think you could stand for God in these pressure cooker moments within these empires like beastly Nebuchadnezzar 
who commanded the worship of his image with the threat of fire. Or Darius the Mede, beastly Darius the Mede, with the threat of being thrown to the beasts if you didn't worship his image, pray to him. Uh, would you, facing these situations, the Daniel in the lion's den moment, would you stand? Would you worship the empire or would you worship God? See, I know what we'd like to think. I know what answers popped into your head for most of you. The answer we want to give is yes, we like to think we would stand. But what about when that command is coupled with the bright lights and the big city and the picture of heaven on earth offered in the gardens of Babylon or in the peace of Rome? Uh, the food, the parties, the feasting of the senses, the sex, the promises on offer if you just leave the safety of your family home and set out on a big adventure into the city to discover your true self. What about then? When faced with the bright lights of the big city, that little taste of heaven on earth, the bright lights of our own garden city maybe, and its courts, its promise of fulfilment if we buy and sell and work and participate in an economy that's seeking heaven on earth. So that's what temples were in the Bible, heavens on earth, where you went to taste a bit of heaven and we, we still have temples, garden cities. This is the food court from Garden City offering us a vision of heaven if we'll just buy into a system of worship. And we can do this online too now. Uh, there's a theologian named William Kavanagh who wrote a book called Being Consumed. Uh, it's a great book. And he wrote this article about Amazon being an idolatrous empire, an idolatrous system that dehumanizes people. Not just us as we purchase things, as we think that's the answer, more consumption, but it, can, it commodifies people by disguising the human involvement behind our purchases. We go on the site and we press a button, we satisfy our desires, we see the thing and it's very cheap price, but we have no idea who made the thing or delivered the thing or packed the thing in a warehouse and we just don't care because it's so convenient to just click a button. And did you know Amazon doesn't have warehouses where they store these things? Amazon have what they call fulfillment centers. These fulfillment centers that will fulfill your desires at the click of a button. Garden cities, fulfillment centers, these are little attempts to build heaven on earth for us. And workers in these fulfillment centers, like other real workers behind our digital heavens, are the people, for example, who decide what images are too much for us to see. It's, it's real people who do that, have to look at the stuff that these platforms decide is too horrible for us to see. These workers behind our experiences, they're invisible. We want to think they're part of the machine. And Amazon wants human workers to act like machines. They've even registered a patent for an electronic wristband that will monitor employees' movements against key timed performance indicators. They want them to be as, as efficient as possible. They want to be more efficient than robots. So they're putting electronics on them to make them like cyborgs, like machines, like beasts of burden. It's this inhuman thing that they're doing to their workforce, all to serve their buyers with cheap products while maximizing profit for the company. And these workers are probably enmeshed in the system too, using their pay from Amazon to buy cheap things from Amazon. It's all a bit like the story of the prodigal son, the way he's drawn by the bright lights of the big city, but ends up living with the pigs and eating their food, becoming animal-like. This sort of system, the system of these big cities, these heavens on earth, they end up dehumanizing us, dehumanizing their workforces into non-humans, and with Amazon, it's all funding Jeff Bezos' dream to create a heavenly future away from Earth where we'll live in these utopian spaceships 
built and serviced by Amazon. That's documented. I'm not making this stuff up. Sounds like science fiction, but it's real. Oh, and then there's the digital paradise, which the idea of that came up again this week with Facebook launching its digital heaven, the metaverse. I don't know if you saw the promos for this, but the idea is we can escape our bodies and their limits and our boring spaces and be our true selves, whoever we want to be, in virtual paradise. Oh, there's artists creating all these virtual Edens. And, and maybe the hope is, and there's people who've written about this, that one day we'll be able to digitise our brains, our consciousness, and live forever in a computer without limits. And this sort of utopian vision, it's perpetuated by every technology ad that tells us we can build heaven for ourselves, either on earth or in space, or this sort of virtual heaven that we might escape to. And one of Facebook's promos for this meta thing tagged, this is going to be fun, I don't know if you can read it on the screen, uh, it's even got predators lying down with prey in a garden. It's very Edenic, isn't it? Or it's a weird two-headed beast from Revelation. You've got to decide, I guess, as you look at this picture, just how beastly it is. Either way, it's apocalyptic. It reveals something. Because as we'll see in our chapters today, fake kingdoms, these beastly kingdoms, they work by presenting fake heavens. And that's part of their appeal. And they invite you to be part of this vision of heaven, to, to join in, to worship, to serve, to give yourself. And so when a beastly empire comes knocking and asking for your worship, it's not just going to be with the threat of the sword, but with the promise of a false heaven and with a false messiah. And so the question is, will you stand? No matter the cost, whether it costs you facing the sword or the fire or the lion's den, or whether it costs you missed opportunities for these heavens on earth. Will you be a faithful witness? Like these two witnesses who stand and speak for God in the passage we've just read, they, they prophesy, they proclaim God's word. They're dressed in sackcloth, dressed for mourning, not glory. And the Greek word for witness here is martyr. Martyrs are those who bear witness to the point of death even. These two martyrs, John calls them two olive trees, two lampstands, who stand before the Lord, and there's a lot of rich Old Testament background for both olive trees and lampstands, but John's already pointed his lens at some lampstands in this letter to tell us who they are. Remember, this is a letter to seven churches, and in the opening of the letter, there are seven lampstands, and we're told by John that the seven lampstands in the book are the seven churches. And then when Jesus calls to the churches, when he tells them to follow him and be faithful. He says, those who don't hear and respond, instead of receiving blessing from God, they'll be cursed. Their lampstands will be removed from God's presence into exile. And so in the letter, Jesus calls five of the seven churches to repent or have their lampstand turned away. And now in the letter, maybe we're seeing the two churches who he told to be faithful and hold on. The two pictures we have of what faithfulness looks like against the backdrop of this empire. Two churches who will hold on while beastly forces push against them, both with the threat of the sword and the power of worshipping in this system that provides heaven on earth. And so Revelation is asking this question, will you stand? Will you hold on to Jesus in the pressure cooker of the big city with its false heavens while beasts surround you? Will you speak for God or will you stand with the beasts? John points his lens at these two faithful churches facing the bright lights and the big cities of the beastly kingdom of Satan and its fake heaven 
And these faithful witnesses, they give their testimony in the city. They testify about Jesus. And when they finish, the beast roars up out of the abyss and kills them. Beastly kingdoms don't like people who speak the truth. They don't like people who pull back the curtain and reveal just how empty they are. Think the Wizard of Oz and that moment of exposure when it's just a man on a bike. Sorry if I spoiled that for anyone who hasn't yet seen that movie that's very, very old. But you've heard of Christianity in the public square. Well, this is what it looks like. Christianity in the public square of the beastly city. This is what it looks like when truth is made public. Not grabbing hold of worldly power, not reaching for things like the sword, not wielding influence, but crucifixion. This is part of our testimony to the crucified Jesus, to act just like Jesus, to speak truth about Jesus, and so to be treated just like Jesus was. Not living or politicking like the kingdoms of this world, but living and politicking like Jesus in his kingdom. And John sees this great city, figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. They were two cities in the Old Testament that were enemies of God and his kingdom, and so experienced his judgment, fire from heaven for Sodom, the plagues and the Passover for Egypt. Only this time the great city is where Jesus was crucified, Jerusalem. Here John's saying Jerusalem has become like those beastly cities of the world that experience God's judgment in the Old Testament. He'll go on to talk about the great city of Rome as a new Babylon, and he's painting Jerusalem and Rome and all these cities as one and the same, beastly cities opposed to the kingdom of God. Beastly cities offering their false picture of heaven on earth. Beastly cities under judgment. And we see a little bit of this in John's account of the crucifixion of Jesus. Back in his gospel, Jesus is on trial and he declares that his kingdom is not of this world. He says that if it was, if it was like the beastly kingdoms of the world, his people would have taken up swords to prevent his arrest by the Jewish leaders. There's an implication in the trial of Jesus that the Jewish leaders, the leaders of the temple in Jerusalem, that little picture of heaven on earth, have been caught up in the beastly system. They've come to arrest Jesus with swords, but Jesus' kingdom comes from elsewhere. And the Jewish leaders drive the crucifixion. They can't afford to lose hold of their power or their influence or their control of that little heaven on earth, the temple, their place in this big city. So they use the power of the beastly empire to achieve what they want. They side with Rome. Pilate, Rome's governor, he wants to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders appeal to beastly human power. If you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. This is the words of God's people who are meant to be waiting for God's king, the Messiah. When crunch time comes, these leaders of God's people don't stand. They don't stand with his Messiah. They stand against his Messiah. They don't prophesy and proclaim God's Messiah. They speak against God's Messiah and they proclaim Caesar as king. It's clear which empire they belong to. We have no king but Caesar. These leaders choose to stand with Caesar, to be friends with Caesar, and so to be friends with the world and its kingdoms, which as Revelation pulls the curtains back, means to be friends with Satan. Now back in Revelation, in this city, this great city where these faithful witnesses have been killed, the bodies of these witnesses become a spectacle in the middle of a celebration. It's a fake heavenly party. It mirrors the heaven we saw last week where people from every tribe 
and language and nation come together in celebration. Only here it's not celebration about the slain lamb and his victory like we saw last week, but celebration about the death of these faithful witnesses. This is a beastly party in a beastly city and a false view of heaven. This is the kingdom of the earth rather than the kingdom of heaven and its vision of heaven. This is Babylonian heaven. It's Roman heaven. It's beastly heaven. Instead of gathering around a slain lamb, these inhabitants of the beast kingdom gather around his, the, the dragon's prey, slain Christians. And they celebrate in this beastly parody of heaven. The city of God, the city of peace, Jerusalem, has become the city of Satan and death. And so it needs renewal. It needs the Old Testament day of the Lord to come. It needs judgment and recreation. And these faithful witnesses, they don't stay dead in the story. They're recreated by the breath of life from God. It's Eden all over again. They're given life. They stand up. They're glorified in the face of their enemies, taken up to heaven, to the heavenly kingdom. And in John's vision, there's an announcement at this point that the kingdom of the world has been replaced by the kingdom not of this world, the kingdom of Jesus. And part of the question that readers of this book have to answer is when do we see this replacement happening? There's all sorts of models of that built around when you see a thousand-year thing that happens in Revelation happening. Is it some future vision of the church in the last days? Or is it a picture of reality for every faithful church living in the world marked by Jesus' victory and awaiting his return? Do we need a literal Jerusalem with a new temple and faithful witnesses in that city being put to death for Jesus to begin his reign? That's the million-dollar question, and yet I think Revelation actually answers it for us from the beginning of the book with its picture in chapter 1 of God and the slain lamb, the Son of Man, ruling in heaven. That reign has begun. It has become reality. The King of Kings has been ascended into his throne and now rules and people from every tribe and tongue and nation can come home to God. John wants faithful churches who hang on to Jesus to know that the future is already secure, that we're already raised with Jesus in the heavenly realm, that we already belong to him, that his victory already covers us no matter what happens in these cities. And judgment has already fallen on Jerusalem. The temple curtain was torn. God has departed and gone out to all nations. The kingdom has been taken from them and given to everybody who puts their faith in the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the day of the Lord has come when God's glorious presence is poured out on people through the Holy Spirit arrival, uniting us to Jesus, raising us with him. And so judgment will come on all those people who reject the King of kings and choose the beast. Jesus will reward his faithful witnesses who revere his name and judge those beastly empires, not just for the way they treat God's people, but because beastly living destroys the earth and the whole earth, as we'll see at the end of this book, needs to be renewed. It needs to become this new Eden. And so we live in the now and the not yet. And John turns his lens on these beastly kingdoms to show us what they look like and to show us who they serve. And so in chapter 12, we get a retelling of the story of the Bible, like a, a high-level story centered on the birth of a chosen king and the defeat of the dragon, Satan. It's a Christmas story like you've never heard it before. And if you're putting together your nativity scene for this year, make sure you've got a dragon. 
because we meet this pregnant woman. And when you see the number 12, I think you're meant to think Israel. It's this picture of Israel as a woman, glorious, clothed with the sun, about to give birth to a king. She's pregnant, ready to deliver God's chosen king to the world, the serpent crusher who we've been waiting for from the start of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 3. And she's met in her labour by the serpent, an enormous red dragon. And we see crowns and horns, they're symbols of power and authority. Here's this enormous red dragon in all its might, waiting to devour the child the moment he's born. Like Herod with Jesus or Pharaoh with Moses, he's ready to devour this child the moment he's born. And the, women, the woman gives birth to the promised king who will rule all nations, not just Israel, just as the, promise, the prophets promised, looking forward to the day of the Lord. And before the dragon can sink his teeth in, this child is snatched up to God and finds himself in God's throne room. And that seals the defeat of the dragon. The great dragon, Satan, is hurled down. The ascension of this king to the heavens, restoring all people of those nations, every tribe and tongue and nation back to life under God's rule. Well, in John's vision, this has happened. And so we get in chapter 12, now, now have come the salvation, the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. The dragon has been hurled down. The kingdom of God and his king, the Messiah, has come with salvation and power and people from all nations can come home. And if you're here this morning as someone who's put their trust in Jesus and you're not of Jewish descent, then you are evidence that this has happened now. Got some blank pages in my talk. It's all right. I've got my talk too. And how did this happen? How did this victory, how is it won? They triumphed over him. This is a picture of the, the battle in the heavenly courts and God's army triumphed over Satan and his demons by the blood of the Lamb. God's army triumphed through Jesus' death on the cross. Right when beastly Rome and Jerusalem joined together to kill Jesus, the dragon who's pulling the strings loses. And how does this victory keep being hammered home? By the word of the testimony of the faithful people of God who are prepared to bear witness even to the point of death. As Tertullian, a guy in church history says, the blood of the martyrs, these faithful witnesses, is the seed of the church. That's how the church spreads through the Roman Empire and eventually takes over faithful testimonies from the church of God. And so now in the story, it's not party time in the false heaven on the earth, these false heavenly cities, not party time over the death of faithful witnesses, but party time in the heavens. Rejoice you in the heavens and all who dwell on him, because the victory has already happened. And yet the serpent has been hurled down and he's filled with fury because he knows he's lost. He knows his time is short. He's thrashing about on borrowed time, trying to take as many people down with him as he can through these beastly empires, through false worship, through pulling people away from giving true testimony about the land. See, what's the call in this chapter for those who live here on the earth and believe the lamb has won? While the dragon is thrashing about, waging war on God's people, trying to devour us like he missed the baby, he's going to go after the baby's children. The command is hold fast. Hold fast to your testimony about Jesus, the victory of the slain lamb. Hold on. Stand. It's exactly what Jesus said to the churches in the start of the letter. It's a bit repetitive, but rep repetition is a feature, not a bug. 
Be the two lampstands. Be the faithful church. Be the faithful witnesses. Be the martyrs, even to the point of death. And so will you stand? Because beastly empires are going to make it hard. They're going to come for you like they came for the faithful witnesses in chapter 11, and it might hurt. But you know it hurts more in the story of Revelation, in the story of the Bible? Letting go of God, exile from God, judgment from God, death and destruction from God. John zooms in to see, to show us these powers and principalities, these beastly empires in the world as they are, these violent, grasping dominion systems that dehumanize and devour as we humans worship beasts and conform to their image. We get this picture of these two beasts who serve the dragon, who work on his watch. He's there bleeding to death, standing on the shore of the sea. And John sees a beast coming out of the sea. It's got 10 horns and seven heads with 10 crowns. There's power and authority again. On each head, there's a blasphemous name. Each crowned head proclaims itself a false god, a, a false king, a false savior. Each one invites us to be ruled by someone other than Jesus. It's beastly. It's like the beast in the Old Testament. And it's given power and a throne and authority by the dragon. These earthly empires serve Satan, serve the kingdom of the world, not the kingdom, not of this world. And Satan gives these kingdoms power to oppose God. He backs their blasphemy because that's what Satan loves. Remember, if you were here a few weeks back, we saw how Revelation, it might work better as a lens. There's this graph. You might not be able to see it from back here. Sometimes we read Revelation like it's a code and we've got to figure out exactly who it's talking about. But maybe it's a lens that helps us look at the world, that reveals things about the world to us rather than a code about specific figures. So I think these chapters are a lens exposing worldly kingdoms opposed to Jesus as tools of Satan. The lens obviously works for its first audience. It works for all audiences since. So while there's reason to be, I think, suspicious of some readings that see only Rome in these beasts, uh, with all sorts of mathematical stuff, weird reconstructions about Nero dying by the sword and fears he might return from the dead, Rome is definitely an example of the beastliness of these kingdoms that's here in the book and it's there for the first readers. But I think the lens is meant to help us see that beastly satanic systems are the ones that pull us to worship gods other than Jesus, especially because of their incredible might, their power. Who can wage war against these empires? Who can resist them? And then we'll get a second beast in a little while in chapter 13, and that's the picture of wealth and prosperity and the, the PR machine that goes with the might and power. Beastly empires and systems are blasphemous. They oppose God's name while claiming to bring order and goodness to the world, while claiming to build heaven on earth, taking God's place, trying to build heavenly dwelling places, temples, trying to build Eden without God in the mix. That's real blasphemy. Not just swearing with God's name, but taking the place of God and trying to do God's work without God. It's the presence of God that makes Eden, Eden, and heaven, heaven. You can't have them without him. These beastly kingdoms are built on worship of the beast and beastly power and trying to bring order to the world without God, and they inevitably become violent kingdoms, kingdoms of this world that wield the swords rather than being built on sacrificial love like the kingdom of the Lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. They're built 
on destruction of those who oppose them. And so we have to choose the kingdoms of the beast or the kingdoms of the lamb who was slain, the lamb slain before the creation of the world. The message of Revelation is to choose between the beast and the lamb. And it says to choose the beast is to go into captivity, to be cast out of God's presence, out of Eden, into exile. These words in chapter 13 are putting together two promises from Jeremiah about what it looks like to be exiled, to face God's judgment, to be destroyed by the sword. But as Jesus says at one point, those who choose to live by the sword will die by the sword. That's not the nature of his kingdom. The nature of his kingdom is centered on the slain lamb and on people who live like him. And so the faithful witnesses are those who stand, those who endure, those who live by the cross in a world marked by the sword those prepared to be outcasts, those prepared to be humiliated, those prepared to be executed in the public square because we don't participate in beastly systems. We might be present in the world, but we're present as a faithful presence who show people what God's kingdom looks like, bearing testimony to the lamb who was slain, to be those who are faithful and who hold on so that our lamps aren't removed, so that we live for eternity in the presence of God. And so in chapter 13, the second beast turns up and maybe this is the most famous bit of Revelation. It's one that's in the news at the moment around the mark of the beast, the 666. This beast comes from the earth and it looks a bit like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. It's a false messiah, a false prophet mimicking the promises of the true king while being serpent-tongued. And it can be hard to spot the beast in us if you're not looking for it because it's built on deceit like the serpent in Genesis 3. This second beast makes everyone worship the first beast. It orders them to set up an image to be worshipped. It gives life to the image the way God gives life to people. It's this mirror kingdom, this parody. And when looking at the first century through this lens, we see the first beast, if it's Rome and its political and military power secured by the sword, the second beast might be the imperial cult that props up the worship of the emperor, propping up Caesar's claims to divinity Uh, Rome's economic power maybe that brings the peace and prosperity and the picture of heaven that makes everybody want to be a citizen. This second beast is the carrot while the first beast is the stick. And both work together to call us to worship. And the idea here is you can't buy or sell or participate in the heaven-like city of the kingdom without worshipping the king, without carrying his name, the name of the beast, the mark of the beast, his image, living as worshippers, you have to choose. You have to choose God's city, God's heaven, God's name, or the beastly alternatives, the beast or the lamb. Rome is definitely defining the experience of the first readers, but we're leaning towards code, not lens. If we think it's all about Caesar and laws around who can buy and sell in the marketplace using coins with his head printed on them or doing that weird math to get 666 to add up to Nero, that might be part of it. But the lens is showing us Rome as this political, economic and religious system and all of them working together. That's what beastliness looks like. And this is what we get in the world while the dragon thrashes about, propping up false kingdoms and false messiahs and calling us to worship, to become people who grasp after our own kingdom, just like at the start of the story of the Bible. These violent beastly systems are embedded in something that was around before Rome, And it's still around after Rome. While Rome's in the mix, 
There's also something biblical and cosmic and weird going on with these two beasts. Uh, they're like the sea and the land beasts, Leviathan and Behemoth that we see in Job, pictures of the cosmic powers and principalities that we as humans can't rein in, that only God can, pictures of the intersection between the spiritual world, idolatry, the worship of these powers and principalities we saw last week were made to worship God and all the political systems created by these powers. In Job, these big, strong, beastly powers could only be controlled or defeated by God himself. The strength of these beasts was beyond us puny humans, but these beasts are puny for God. In Jewish thought, and these beasts get quite a bit of airtime in Jewish religious writings outside the Bible, these two beasts are symbolic of the powers of evil and God was going to destroy them in the final judgment. It's also there in the Bible, it's part of Isaiah's vision of the day of the Lord, God bringing his sword against Leviathan, the gliding serpent monster of the sea, the chaos beast. Now, there's belief in Jewish religious texts that these beasts will actually be what gets served up for dinner at the great feast on the day of the Lord, God's big banquets, his celebration of the undoing of beastliness at the wedding supper of the Lamb. So it might be better not just to think of them as Rome or empires like that, but this weird intersection between the spiritual realm and their forces in the world. And I know this sounds weird because I feel like it's weird when I'm saying it. You're allowed to think it's weird. It's this picture of God's absolute victory through the Lamb over all of the powers of the heavens and the earth and the invitation for us all to be liberated from beastly rule and come home to Him. A picture that all these political empires, these religious empires, these economic empires that call us to worship, they're beastly and they no longer have power. They're beastly and they're animated by the serpent. See these forces all being brought to heel by God through His victorious King, the slain Lamb, and to call us to choose. And it's a lens we're given to look at the world. So what happens when we look at the world through this lens? When beastly empires want to throw Christians to the lions and Christians are still persecuted around the world and face death for their faith. When beastly empires won't kill anyone, will kill anyone who won't join their worship, their system of politics and economics and spirituality. Where are these forces at work in our world? Where are they at work in our lives? Whether at work in any political, social or economic situation, any city or agenda that offers a false heaven with false messiah. The second beast, the propaganda machine, could well be at work in the advertising industry, selling us pictures of false heaven and calling us to serve that vision and to turn and find fulfilment in the systems that we're part of. False kings, false saviors, who make promises that we can take part in the economy, that we can buy and sell, if we just worship that way, if we just give ourselves. These promises pull us from God and towards beastliness, like the dragon in Eden, they're built on the idea that we can enjoy Eden without God. But the enjoyable bit of Eden is God's presence. Uh, it's there in the metaverse where you may not even be able to buy without Zuckbucks, this new form of currency. It's there in the eschatological, the end times vision of Jeff Bezos and others who think we can build heavenly cities here or in space using human ingenuity. It's there in the bright lights of Garden City or the big casino projects on the riverbank. It's 
They're in the promise of corporations and their ads promising a path to fulfillment if you just consume, devour, and destroy the earth while doing so. It's there in the new idolatry that invites us to experience satisfaction to build our own little heavens at the click of a button, seeking fulfillment while dehumanizing the people on the other end of the mouse click. It's there in the political forces at work in our world, not just in countries where owning the name of Jesus leads to death, or it leads to persecution in the public square, but it's there wherever we face the pressure to conform to the world's view of sex or money or power or progress or growth or politics to chase Leviathan, to embrace the will to power and so to become beastly. See, if we can avoid letting go of Jesus to grab hold of these powers, the, the carrot and the stick, then we might be these faithful witnesses, these faithful martyrs, a faithful presence, a taste of heaven in the world. Those who come together to testify to the crucified king, the slain lamb, and that might leave us as subjects of ridicule or even worse, in the public squares of worldly cities, standing against their fake heavens, figuring out how to participate in a marketplace that has the tendency towards beastliness. But to be faithful, whatever it costs, is to be faithful because it's worth it. Because Jesus is the true king, the land slain before the creation of the world, and he will raise us to life with him in a new Eden. It's not some spaceship built by a corporation. It's not virtual reality dreamed up by big tech, but heaven and earth made new beyond our, wild, our wildest dreams. And it's going to be fun. Will you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Spirit, we would see the world the way you want us to see it. The way this book opens up the curtains and reveals to us not just who you are and who Jesus is, but helps us to see false kingdoms, false heavens for what they are. Paths to destruction. Invitations to be part of those who destroy other people, who consume and devour and also destroy the earth and so earn your judgment. We thank you that though that's us, by inclination, you have saved us through the Lamb, through his death before the creation of the world, through the forgiveness of our sins as he dies in our place, but through the new life you recreate us for by your Spirit. And so we pray that we might live as faithful witnesses in your world, pointing people to the real heaven and the real heavenly city, avoiding being caught up in the bright lights of the big city, avoiding beastliness and holding out life and a true humanity to those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.